Hello, and welcome to CAA Conversations. Today, I'm with Ariana Chaiwaranan and Elizabeth Keto. They're both recent graduates who will be discussing their experiences being artists and art historians at this time, why they chose this field, how art can join the conversation around social justice and truth, and how art can be a mode for risk-taking and expanding boundaries for equality and diversity. Ariana Chaiwaranan is an artist and interpretive planner at the Nelson Atkins Museum of Art in Kansas City. Her art investigates the interface between humans and the digital, examining the consequences of virtual representation for human bodies. Elizabeth Keto is currently a Marshall Scholar studying art history and curating at the Cordold Institute of Art in London. Her research focuses on American photography, museums and public art, and the connections between art and citizenship. Welcome. Thank you so much for having us on the podcast today, Karen. It's a real honor to be here. Yeah, thank you so, so much, Karen. Um, and for our conversation today, from our perspective as students and recent graduates, the way that we talk and think about pedagogy and teaching and art history isn't so much in terms of how we teach, but in terms of the teaching that's been meaningful to us and how it's shaped our thinking about our field. So we'd really like to talk today about some of the big pressing questions we've found ourselves thinking about during our education since graduating and how different teachers, both our mentors and those who've taught us sort of at a distance through their work and their writing have helped us work through them. So we have kind of a series of questions for each other that we'll talk through. So first, Ariana, the big one, we graduated in 2018, why be an artist now? Why be an art historian? So <laughs> I think this question of um, why to be an artist hits home. I have a lot of strangers who are sometimes horrified that I wasted my Harvard degree studying art. Um, and I think this judgment really stems from a hope, a genuine hope that the students who have the incredible opportunity to attend Harvard will use their education to give back and to work toward a more enlightened, equitable world. Um, and it makes me think of Hans Hacke's um, talk at Artists Respond, a symposium at the Smithsonian American Museum of Art this spring. Um, in that talk, Hakka noted that artists must accept that we're not directly involved in the fight for social justice, not as involved as frontline activists, um, that our audiences are largely limited to those who have the time, the capital, the inclination, and the language um, to encounter our work, and that often our work might be siloed into white-walled museum settings. Um, and Honestly, this was shocking and a little bit discouraging to hear from the revolutionary creator of the 1970 MoMA poll, which intervened with the techniques of democracy itself. Um, and so later in a gallery talk, the curator of the show, Melissa Ho, actually agreed that even framework shifting artists like Hans Hacke, um, who have tangible effects on the discourse in the art world, might not um, be affecting the broader public opinion, um, in that case of Vietnam at the time. And so in addressing this question of how we can be accountable artists and art historians who have specific visions of how our work can fulfill the responsibility to give back, um, I think about art as a tool for social change in two primary ways. So firstly, it communicates in a language that I think transcends the hierarchies of linguistic communication in many ways. Um, and secondly, I think the content of that communication is the kind of integral histories and, and worldviews 
outside of one's own. And so I think of my role as an artist and as an educator and now an interpretive planner as one of translating between the world, the art object and viewers experiences. Um, in her ecosystem of social change, Deepa Iyer describes the role of artists as storytellers, as quote, binding the past and present, channeling the histories and experiences of our ancestors to shed light on what is possible today. So in thinking about what's possible today, I would love to hear your thoughts, Elizabeth, about the practice of art history in the world right now. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've also thought a lot about kind of how to reconcile being an art historian with a sense of public service. And, you know, while many of the critiques that you were talking about of kind of the art world's relatively limited capacity to participate in broader social change seems justified. Something I've been thinking about a lot lately, too, is, you know, what if the fact that the art world doesn't matter in terms of concrete political and social change following Hans Hacke is actually part of why it's so important that it kind of serves as this sphere of civil imagination, because politics is rightly a sphere of compromise. It's of working your way from the dream to the reality, but art isn't really under those kinds of obligations. And perhaps that's part of why it can serve as a space to dream the possible. It's a starting point, it doesn't have to be an end. Um, you know, and I, I also tend to think of art in some ways, you know, as that kind of alternative public sphere, the way that the art world, particularly the public world of kind of museums and galleries can be a space of a certain form of citizenship that's to say, you know, through works of art, people who are geographically, even historically separated from each other can appear to each other and be recognized as citizens of a common cultural space. You know, to take an example from my own area of study, the civil rights era in America was a, a real golden age of photography and photojournalism. And civil rights leaders knew the value of photographs as vehicles of recognition at a distance you know, powerful tools for claiming citizenship, even when that had been denied or challenged in political space. You know, I really love um, art historian Didier Malouve, I think puts this really beautifully when he describes art historical practice as, you know, quote, the representational thinking that sustains ordinary moral intelligence. So part of what we train in looking at art is the capacity to see the inner life behind a face or to represent other people to ourselves. And then thinking about kind of the art world and its contributions to this broader social climate, one of the things I wanted to ask you, Ariana, is that, you know, we've seen the debate in the current kind of media environment. It's often about establishing truth and facts. And art and its analysis tend to turn on more subjective visions and judgments. I mean, what kind of contribution can art and artists make when it comes to thinking through truth and the role it plays in our society today? I think my idea of truth is really informed by going to a liberal arts school and having the opportunity to take courses in the history of science and in um, science itself. And through that coursework, um, there's a recurring theme that this idea of scientific objectivity actually is an ideal and not an achievable reality. And while at first, that might seem to suggest that truth is subjective and specific to each individual. I think actually the contingency of our understanding of truth means it's inherently outside of each individual. Um, I was reading a book recently that was based around um, an early 20th century math theorem called the incompleteness theorem developed by Kurt Gödel. And 
um, that incompleteness theorem states that there's no algorithm capable of proving all truths about the natural numbers. And so the second part of that theorem says that the system, any kind of math system, cannot demonstrate its own consistency. So that means there will always be truths that are unprovable within the system. And in applying that mathematical system to daily life and to current debates about the relevance of artificial intelligence and codifying what means to be human um, and broader debates about truth, I think we might say that it's up to each of us to locate truths outside of our seemingly consistent and true worldviews. So as a diverse field of the arts, which I think is always integrating um, different kinds of social norms and interrogating social conventions and logics, I think dealing with this process of creation and the rendering of the invisible are in a constant seesaw of the ego and this kind of self-abandoned dedication to truth outside of oneself. I think of artists and creators as people who are at the front lines of integrating complex, obscured truths and often um, representing them to the world. And in thinking about that, I sort of imagine the process of inspiration as this kind of visitation of the ineffable. Um, that ineffable might visit either through this sort of chaotic intervention of the world around you or through a scrambling of the categories and heuristics that you use to see the world that challenges um, and defamiliarizes things that you used to be um, able to kind of pin down. And so I think this process of inspiration is really like opening the borders of yourself to trying to tie something that doesn't fit into your current worldview. And that forces you to restructure your sense of self around this new thing and to create a more expansive understanding of the world. And so in thinking about this kind of contingency of truth, I would love to hear how you think about truth in art history as a practice. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, truth is something I think about a lot because, you know, I study photography and, and photographic truth is kind of one of the most sort of debated ideas, I think. I mean, photographs would seem to be the most truthful of images, pure records of visual fact, but even photographers have limited power to control the content and always the meaning of their images. I mean, in kind of my most recent work, I've been looking a lot at war photography and these images which are created under the most repressive of circumstances, countless photographs of violence, sometimes, you know, even taken by their perpetrators, have through just the passage of time been made to testify against their makers. They've been made records of something very different from sort of what they were intended to be. And they have this power to transform under the eye of the beholder, this slipperiness that's really hostile to the presumption of a single viewpoint that's true under all circumstances. That's one of their most frustrating qualities, but it's, it's, I think, one of their most valuable ones in terms of keeping in mind what you say, that commitment to truth, but that recognition that it exists outside of a single viewpoint. Um, you know, and for me, art history more broadly, it can be really helpful to think of it as a process of continually flawed translation of a truth that tends to remain 
unsayable that there's no correct way to translate a work of art into words or relate it to history. There's no one-to-one -one correspondence. So that looking at a work of art has a way of bending your language out of shape or making you grasp for words. And you know, the building of bridges between those two forms of experience can feel pretty precarious, but it can be a really powerful exercise in that kind of humility about truth. And, and thinking more about that idea of kind of failing to interpret, failing to find truth. Another question I know we've both thought a lot about at this kind of beginning stage of our careers is failure. I mean, one of the things that we confront is the fear of failure. So how do you think about that? What does failure mean to you? How do you make up your mind to take risks? So I think our culture right now talks a lot about failure and encouraging failure, you know, leaning into it. Um, specifically, neoliberal startup culture is constantly reminding us of this generative potential of failure. Um, and, and failure is certainly a kind of essential part of Harvard and I think of any young person's maturation process. But um, I've been thinking recently about the consequences of that failure. And um, I listened to this TED talk with the UPS training manager, John Bowers. And in that talk, Bowers is reminding us that imperfection has real consequences. Um, for his drivers, doing their best isn't enough because imperfection means death. And even though, you know, maybe a lot of us artists or um, a lot of us who work in museums or in art history um, aren't facing that um, weight of life and death every day in our jobs, I wonder what it would mean for all of us to take our practices that seriously and what it would mean for us to really think through the weight of dedicating your life to something. Um, if we're going to dedicate our lives to something such as art, shouldn't we approach it with the utmost respect and with the belief that there is a life-changing capacity to doing a job well done? I think that the idea that maybe doing my best sometimes isn't enough isn't actually discouraging to me. It's something that gives me a sense of urgency and a kind of purpose and um, a kind of energy as I approach that goal of bursting and expanding the limits of my self-interest and my comfort zone. It's a philosophy that I practiced in the studio with works that um, investigate the borders of a body or the skin barrier um, or the sort of disconnect between people. And it's this philosophy that says, you know, you're at the border of a canvas of the skin barrier of your artistic abilities and you have to keep going. If you're broken, you have to rebuild. And this question comes up of why should we risk breaking ourselves? For me, I believe that the compassionate and equitable and sustainable world that we are striving for requires the incorporation of, quote, others into the sense of the self. And um, this reminds me of what you were talking about earlier with um, cultivating a kind of active civil imagination that is thinking about um, what it means to be a participant in the world. Um, I think that the alternative, the alternative of not challenging yourself and opening your borders is 
really no less catastrophic than the persistence of bigotry and environmental exploitation and interfactional violence. Um, and so this idea of crossing into uncharted territory, um, I think also parallels in my work with an a sort of discomfort outside of the canons of rigorous art theory. Um, it's something I'm really struggling with. Uh, I ask myself, what does it mean after going to Harvard to take the license to not be backed by rigorous theory or to experiment with non-traditional or, or even ahistorical or anachronistic methodologies? And this particular kind of academic rigor and historical accountability um, is how I learned to interrogate the relevance of my um, work. And, and so it's really hard for me to feel satisfied with the quality of the things that I make if I don't already have an idea about how they're in conversation with some kind of critical theory. And this demand for myself and really for each of us to feel, to interrogate, and to believe in the need of their work isn't a small ask. I am sort of aware that that's a big thing to ask of myself and of um, the people around me. But for me personally, I think that living in a world um, that we do today with so many pressing problems, there isn't really time to waste um, doing things that you don't believe in. And I want to also say that I recognize that this ability to take risks is really entangled in privilege. And um, social psychologist and professor at the Columbia Business School, Adam Galinsky, has research about um, speaking up. And this research shows that the range of acceptable behavior um, for an individual is determined by the amount of power you already have. So Galinsky is really exploring strategies for how people with low amounts of power can expand their range of acceptable behavior. They can do it through perspective taking, through advocating for others, through um, cultivating and demonstrating expertise. Um, but the point here is really that none of us can prescribe the appropriate amount of risk for other people to take. And that we all have to be really honest with ourselves about the amount of privilege and resilience that we each have. For me personally, for example, I might be able to recognize that I'm a young queer artist of color, I come from modest means, but I also happen to have a light-skinned, healthy body and a degree from a widely respected college, a robust and diverse community of supportive friends and family, and so in recognizing those privileges, um, I think that I have the potential to um, cultivate a kind of ability to facilitate connection across people with diverse backgrounds. And in thinking about my role as an interpretive planner and an educator, I think that it's important to recognize the privilege um, that I do have and to use it to be brave and to venture into um, any kind of blind spots that broader culture has and to empower students um, to, with that bravery, um, to have a kind of more expansive worldview. Um, in thinking about this idea of failure in our early careers, I would love to hear how you judge failure as an art historian. Yeah, I mean, I think it's an interesting question because I know I've 
failed many times in terms of kind of misinterpretations, taking works out of historical context, disregarding artists' intentions, you know, without defending or even being fully aware of what I've been doing. But I think when you talk about kind of the, the risks, but also the rewards in some ways of thinking outside the canon, thinking outside theory, I mean, one of the ideas I always found really generative from my professors in college was the idea of strong misreading, which is a term that comes out of Harold Bloom's literary criticism. And Bloom believed that the works of art, the texts that are really canonical, are the ones that generate misreadings, the ones that don't have an authoritative, exhaustive, correct account of them. And it's the words that works that are misread, misinterpreted, that remain challenging and not fully digestible that really inspire us and inspire other artists. So I feel like sometimes even if you fail as an art historian to make sense of a work, that can also be a positive thing. Um, and then speaking to the kind of other aspect of failure that you were speaking to, failure and, and risk, I also have to recognize that my ability to take the risk of becoming an art historian is dependent on certain forms of privilege like my education and the support of my family. And I think this question of risk is a really key one for the art world to grapple with if we're serious about diversifying the pipeline of art historians, artists, curators, art educators. I mean, because as a student reporter for our undergraduate newspaper, I actually did an investigation of the diversity of different fields of study and found that students of color were less likely to concentrate in arts and humanities disciplines than their white peers, actually 40% less likely. And what some of the professors and administrators and students in those fields told me is that it's kind of a tripartite problem that first of all, there's the way that art history and other humanities disciplines tend to have a canon, sort of a, that there's work to be done in diversifying just the art and the text that students are told are important and meaningful, that there can also be a relatively, there's the pace of, there's second, there's the pace of change in the demographics of professors, chief curators, and other leaders in the field, because it's, it's hard to imagine, it's risky to imagine yourself pursuing a career where no one looks like you. And third, I think there is the problem of financial risk of unpaid internships, when, which there's definitely some progress being made. You know, and later the problem of part-time jobs or limited term fellowships, where you might not really be able to support yourself or start saving. And when there's all these factors added together, I think that does create a sense of risk around some of these careers and fields. So I think there's a lot of progress being made in terms of really pioneering invisible work being done in diversifying universities and museums. I mean, I know we both, for example, had you know, the inspiration of Sarah Lewis's teaching on art and racial justice at Harvard, but there's definitely still more to do. I think that point is a really great point to wrap up on because for us, really, I know the most important takeaway from this conversation is how indebted we are to our own mentors, to our teachers, for broadening our minds, for pushing us to think about these big questions of social responsibility, of truth, of risk-taking. And for us, I think that we really want to pay that forward and to continue thinking about what our generation can do to open the art world, to open art history, to broader audiences, um, to, to represent the full diversity that we strive for. And so I want to thank um, you, Karen, so much for giving us the space to have this conversation. We're so grateful. And of course, um, to thank all of our mentors who were so integral um, to 
our educations and to us being here. So thank you really for having us. We're internally grateful. Thank you, Karen.